This is New England Public Radio's Jazz Beat. I'm Tom Reaney with a podcast edition of my jazz blog, which you can find at nepr.net. This edition of Jazz Beat focuses on the roles that George Ween and Duke Ellington played in establishing an annual jazz festival in New Orleans. Ellington's first appearance at what was then called the New Orleans Jazz Festival and Louisiana Heritage Fair took place in 1970. It was the third annual jazz festival in New Orleans, but the first that George Ween produced under the Jazz and Heritage banner. And for the occasion, Ellington was commissioned to write a new work entitled The New Orleans Suite. Based on tapes of the concert that have surfaced in recent years, The suite's opener, Blues for New Orleans, was the only movement that Duke performed at the festival. Ellington was famous for completing new works only minutes before deadline, but it would seem that most of the suite must have been ready at the time of his festival appearance on April 25th, since its recording for Atlantic Records was completed only 18 days later, on May 13, 1970. Whatever the case, Ween's introduction of Duke included the news that the festival would be returning the following year, despite a loss of $40,000 in its inaugural presentation under his stewardship. Forty-five years later, the fest is thriving, but its content has changed considerably from Ween's original conception of a weekend devoted to music from Louisiana. Highlights from the Ellington concert included a Johnny Hodges mini-set of blues for New Orleans, Passion Flower, and Things Ain't What They Used to Be, and while Bill Davis joining the band to play his famous arrangement for Count Basie of April in Paris. Ellington credits the original orchestration for what he called establishing a majestic way of monumental cool. While Bill Davis was a pioneering Hammond B3 organist who came to prominence working with Louis Jordan's Timpani V in the early 50s, he was a late arrival to the Ellington fold. On the rare occasions when Duke took a break from the road in the mid-60s, Johnny Hodges fronted a combo in Atlantic City that included Wild Bill, and they were co-billed on several RCA Victor albums. Davis is prominent on blues for New Orleans, and he was with the orchestra on several occasions when I saw Duke in the early 70s. Here's blues for New Orleans. Thank you. 
The Jazz and Heritage Festival, Ellington hailed the orchestra as Buddy Bolden's second line. Bolden was the New Orleans trumpeter whom legend regards as the most pivotal figure in the transition from ragtime to what later came to be called jazz. A figure of ongoing fascination, Bolden's institutionalization for acute alcoholic psychosis in 1907 resulted in his near total absence from the historical and musical record. Officially, about all that exists on Buddy Bolden are records from the New Orleans City Directory and the Insane Asylum of Louisiana. But a photo of the trumpeter with his six-piece band and the published recollections of Jelly Roll Morton and Sidney Bechet give considerable support to Bolden's stature as what Morton called the blowinest man since Gabriel. Morton composed his famous blues, I Thought I Heard Buddy Bolden Say, in tribute to the trumpeter, and Michael Andaji's novel, Coming Through Slaughter, is a fictionalized version of his life. Bolden was also central to a movie about jazz that Orson Welles hired Ellington to collaborate on in 1941. Duke worked on the script and soundtrack for about three months before RKO Pictures pulled the plug over cost overruns that Welles was incurring with another movie. It was more than the legend of Buddy Bolden that captivated Ellington about the Crescent City. Beginning in the mid-twenties, a second line of New Orleanians provided Duke with an early and essential stylistic foundation. Barney Bigard was the band's clarinet soloist for 20 years, and Wellman Bro, its first important bassist, propelled the band for a decade. Trumpeter Bubber Miley was a South Carolina native, but his main influence in developing the growling wah-wah brass style that became a signature element in Ellington's tonal palette was the New Orleans legend King Oliver. And Sidney Bechet, who dated Hodge's older sister when the great Reed Man was playing in Boston around 1920, toured with the Ellington band during the band's summer sojourns in New England in the mid-20s. He never recorded with Duke, but Ellington praised him as a player whose music was all soul. To be certain, New Orleans jazz, its origins, legacy, and mythology played a vital and ongoing role in the imagination of Edward Kennedy Ellington. From the New Orleans Suite, here's Portrait of Louis Armstrong featuring Cootie Williams. (laughs) ¶¶ 
The New Orleans Suite was one of the most fully realized of Ellington's latter-day works, offering portraits of Armstrong, Bechet, Wilman Bro, and Mahalia Jackson, and evocative pieces like Bourbon Street Jingling Jollies and Thanks for the Beautiful Land on the Delta. While its themes were historical, the music was right in step with jazz of the early 70s, and it won the Grammy for Best Jazz Performance by a Big Band in 1971. Alas, it was the last recording to feature Johnny Hodges. He died on May 11, 1970, and was reputedly poised to play soprano saxophone for the first time in almost 40 years on the portrait of Sidney Bechet. There's an important backstory involving George Ween and Duke Ellington in the earliest attempts at presenting a jazz fest in New Orleans, a city where segregation remained in effect throughout most of the 60s. Among the Jim Crow customs still in force were ones that permitted blacks and whites to be in the same place only out of doors, not in an indoor facility, and black and white groups to appear in succession, but not together on the same stage. Crescent City officials first approached Ween in 1962, but when the impresario met with them in a private dining room at the Royal Orleans Hotel, he made it clear that his fest would include integrated ensembles, and he said that Duke Ellington, who'd be a part of anything he produced, is accustomed to being treated as royalty wherever he goes. He stays only in the finest hotels. Ween detailed the saga of establishing jazz and heritage in his memoir, Myself Among Others, Life and Music, and he reports that the lunch ended with a consensus view that the time had not yet come for a jazz festival in the South. From the New Orleans Suite, here's Second Line, a work that's recently been recorded by Delfeo Marcellus and the Uptown Jazz Orchestra. By the time the fest was presented in 1968, it was Willis Conover, the renowned jazz host of The Voice of America, who was hired to produce it. George Ween learned through the grapevine that his own marriage to an African-American, Joyce Alexander, might be a political embarrassment to New Orleans Mayor Shiro if he were given the job, so it went to Conover. 
It took only two years for the festival to become mired in local politics before the New Orleans Hotel Motel Association brought in Ween to run it once and for all. The festival is now owned by the nonprofit Jazz and Heritage Foundation, which is chaired by Quint Davis, the New Orleans native who's been involved with the festival since its inception under George Ween. But credit the respect Duke Ellington had earned elsewhere in the world with making it necessary for New Orleans to begin getting its act together before a bona fide jazz festival would be presented in the city of the music's birth. Ellington made historic appearances at several of George Ween's Newport Jazz Festivals, including a 1958 performance that featured the great gospel star Mahalia Jackson singing his spiritual theme, Come Sunday. To see a classic photo of Ellington and Mahalia at the New Orleans Festival in 1970, and for additional features on Duke Ellington, visit the Jazz on the Mode blog at nepr.net. Thanks to Katie Wright for production assistance. For Jazz Beat, I'm Tom Reaney. Here's Ellington's portrait of Mahalia Jackson. (laughs) ¶¶ 